in the book, I write about some of the trauma that I experienced growing up. And I wrote about it in depth, not as a shock value, but as this is the truth. And I remember asking my editor, is this too much? And he said, absolutely not. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and you know, one of the things that I am often heard saying is that the decision of whether to self-publish or seek a traditional book deal should always be a strategic one and that it is really ill-advised to allow your ego to dictate your publishing route. And today's guest is a living example of the value of that idea. And so I'm very happy to introduce to you today, Natasha Miller, who is the author of the self-published book, Relentless, Homeless Teen to Achieving the Entrepreneur Dream. Now, Natasha isn't your average author, nor is she your average CEO. She sits at the helm of entire productions, the go-to experience design event and entertainment production company in San Francisco. Her company has been on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America for three years in a row. Natasha's passion and commitment to giving back drive her invaluable contributions and participation with numerous charitable organizations. She is a proud graduate of Goldman Sachs' 10,000 small businesses and has studied entrepreneurship at the Harvard Business School and MIT. Natasha is also a performing jazz vocalist and a trained classical violinist. And she is a member of the Recording Academy, ASCAP, and Meeting Professionals International. She resides in San Francisco, California, where she is also a member and on the board of the Entrepreneurs Organization, EO. So without further ado, let's go talk to Natasha. Natasha, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you, Robin. So good to meet you. You as well. And you know, as I was checking you out online, I just got so excited about so many aspects of you and who you are and the things that you've done so that we can organize all of these exciting things. I would love to ask you to share with our listeners about your journey in publishing your book, Relentless, subtitled Homeless Teen to Achieving the Entrepreneur Dream. So I guess without giving too much of the book away, let's just have you start with what made you decide to write a book in the first place? I was at a conference with entrepreneurs, it was a mentorship conference. Instead of people speaking to you, we were all speaking to each other. This was in Vail. And one of the mentors was an author, a published author. She was 
more geared toward the millennial set of like sort of self-help. But when she listed off her points of experience and how she could help us, it just kind of everything welled up inside of me. And I certainly did not go to this pretty expensive conference to learn that I needed to now write my book. I was there to learn how to scale and grow and whatever, but that's what happened. So that was four years ago. And I then hired this person to help me sort of as a coach and getting started. And really I needed sort of a pep team. Mm -hmm. That's what I needed at that time. And she got me going. And then, you know, I was really not understanding and not sure what publishing path I wanted to take. And I didn't know what publishing path was available to me. So I am a successful entrepreneur with a multi-million dollar profitable company and seven CDs. And like, I know a lot of people, I'm in a lot of groups. So I have what a lot of publishers are looking for as far as, you know, the reach. And I really dug deep and looked at the variances of self-publishing, professional publishing, hybrid publishing, and traditional publishing. And I ended up through those four years having two different agents and some deals approached to me. And as an entrepreneur and a business person, I looked at what I would be giving up in both hybrid and traditional versus what I could really leverage on my own publishing label and ultimately chose to publish on my own and not just on my own, but started a publishing company, actually have a publishing company for music. And it's very similar, although the royalties and the rev shares are different. And I'll be publishing other entrepreneurs' books right now, focusing on memoir and writing their own story. But who knows if a lot of entrepreneurs write their business idea book, it's yeah. you know, their calling card and their, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yeah, um, of reasons. I'm finding that the memoir I wrote, I think is much more powerful than a brain dump of how to in business. Yeah. Well, you have a, quite an extraordinary story also, though. Yeah, it's very over the top. The responses I'm getting from people have proven to me that the decisions I made in the book were the right ones. And those decisions that I was maybe waffling on was how much, how much vulnerability, how much raw truth, yeah. how much of the stuff that I never told my best friends Mm-hmm. Do you put in a book? And as it turns out, it's been monumental. It has moved the needle in a way that I'm very surprised at and very content and happy with. Mm. So let me ask you this. Can you give us an example of like a particular thing that was a real choice point for you in terms of, and describe for our listeners some of the considerations that you had and the struggles? Because I think this is such a common thing that we bump up against anytime we're writing something autobiographical. Yes. So I am a pretty well-known entity in the entrepreneurship world, and I have very big clients, Salesforce and Google and Apple and LinkedIn. And these are the people that are paying my company to do, you know, this is my livelihood. But in the book, I write about in some of the trauma that I experienced as growing up, some of the self-harm that I experienced. And I wrote about it in depth, 
not to shock anyone and not as a shock value, but as this is the truth. And I remember asking my editor, is this too much? And he said, absolutely not. This is the thing that will have people believing and trusting you. Mm-hmm. So I put that in and that's a chance I took. Now, I didn't feel it was a, really a chance because I've proven so much in my life about the ability to do what it is that my company does and such. But if somebody chooses not to work with entire <laughs> productions because of that passage, so be it. But I think that people see themselves because you know not everyone is self-harming in the way that I did, but we are all doing something to manage our stress. And we're not talking about it. We're not talking about it to each other. And maybe we don't need to, but maybe some of us do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you're right too, that when you, you know, it's one thing to have achieved some amazing things and tell people about how you achieve them, but it's something completely different. And I think deeper and more powerful when you can also share that vulnerability side And it's more inspiring because it helps the reader to see, oh, wow. So she didn't always, she wasn't always the Natasha Miller that we see. She grew into it. So maybe I can grow into a bigger version. I think it also gives people a voice. They're like, oh my God, I've been keeping this secret for so long. But if she could put it in a book, (laughs) then maybe I can tell my therapist. Mm. Or maybe I can tell my husband or my best friend or my daughter, right? So now, again, I did not put it in to pave the way for that. That is what the outcome has been. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, because you put it in to express your truth, which is yeah. the only reason that you should put something in. I was also curious because a big fear that comes up when people are talking about writing memoir, especially when there's some trauma in their history is about like outing other people. Yeah. Did you come up with against that? And if so, yes. like how did you deal with that? Oh gosh. Okay. So this happens to anyone writing their own story, right? Because it involves other real people. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you this, this is the advice I would give to anyone writing is that you can write, you can start writing your story. If you're feeling revengeful or you want to just skewer someone for the horrible things that they've done to you. That's okay. You can start writing in that mind frame, but you can't publish it that way. Right. <laughs> right? That is Amen. not that is not how to do it. Right. Now, did I know that as I was writing? Not necessarily, but because I took four years to do it, I actually grew up as well. I grew during that time. If you're not growing, you're dying. But so the passages about my mother could have come off as revengeful, revengeful. But at the time of publishing, I was able to edit out the things that would have made people cringe because nobody wants to read that either, right? Right. They don't want to have that experience. And I, at the point, well, before it was published, I was like, okay, I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want her to be hurt. I don't really want her to read it, Hmm. but my goal wasn't to stick the knife in and pull it out. However, I was brutally honest with Mm. what happened. But I think you can see and read some empathy. It might not be a huge amount, but you can see that I understand why it happened now. You don't understand as a kid why these are happening, 
But as an adult, I can look back. So I changed. So I would also suggest to everyone, anyone writing, to use everyone's real name all the way up until the final edit. Yes. Don't change them until then, because if you change them early, (laughs) the attachment and the emotion that goes with writing can get a little fishy. Yeah. And you'll get confused. Well, I mean, tell everyone. I'm going to admit this to you right now. Someone recently said, Oh my God, whatever happened to Philip? And I'm like, Who's Philip? (laughs) Right? Because I changed it at the end. And I don't remember what these characters' names are. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm going to have to, I mean, I've read the Audible. So now I like have had one more pass. Through reading, but I'm like, who are you talking about? So I changed the names of most. Yeah. So anyone that I didn't ask permission to write about, mm-hmm. anyone that had, they would potentially feel miffed. Mm-hmm. And I kept in the names of the real people with permission, or mm-hmm. if it were teachers that I'm like, people that have been amazing in my life, right? right? They right. don't mind, yeah. right? right? They don't mind being in it. But I did, there was a passage in there where I have an ex-boyfriend. We were together for five years and we had a child together that died during childbirth and I almost died. We've been apart for many years. And I just said, I need you to read this and let me know if it's okay to use your name. And if not, you can choose your own, but this story, this passage is happening. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't show him in a negative light, but it is personal and it could open a can of worms of whatever. And he read it and he said, you can leave my name in. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, a memoir is your memory of what's happening. Not anybody else's memory. Right. And my memoir is as truthful as I could both remember. And I kept journals since I was 10 years old Mm. and there are transcripts from homeless shelters and psych wards. It's all in the book. You have to read it to find out the craziness. Right. And it was actually, I wrote a lot, maybe 50 to 80,000 words. At that point, of course I had to whittle down, but at that point I went back to the journals because I wasn't sure if I was making things more dramatic Mm. in hindsight. And I Mm -hmm. didn't want to do that. And I was like, oh God, have I really blown this out of proportion? And when I read the journals, I was like, oh shit, it was worse. Yeah than my memory recalled. Yeah. And of course that happens, right? Because we just went through a pandemic of two and a half years. But do we really remember every single day? Thank God, no. No, I know exactly. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, and I think that that is such an important... It's actually, I think, writing a memoir can be incredibly therapeutic because it not only... Gosh, there's two competing thoughts. This is why I'm stumbling. Because on one hand, I think writing autobiographical stuff is really tough because you're opening old wounds. Oh, yeah. Right? And you know what else you're doing? You're opening the door to a floodgate of secrets revealed. Yes. Yes. One huge secret made it into the book. Just threw a torpedo through my entire family. And it was only because I was writing the book that it was discovered. I won't do the spoiler alert, but it's toward the end. And I don't know if I would have ever found this out had I not written this book. So it's something you discovered in the writing, not something you necessarily revealed that everyone else discovered. 
Well, without telling you what it is, because I do want to tease you. Oh, I tease you to death, Robin. Oh, yes. I'm, is, I'm all um, So when I asked my brothers basically for permission to write this book or not permission to write it, but I had to admit to them I was doing it. One brother is pretty buttoned up and I thought he would be like mortified, but he looked at me and he said, you write it. It happened. And I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. The other brother was a little less enthusiastic, but it was that brother in that conversation that had us talking deeper. So below the surface a bit. And that brother that was a bit hesitant took me aside a few months later after that and revealed a giant family secret he was keeping for Mm. my mother. And oh my God, the can of worms that that opened up. Now, after publishing the secrets and the things are coming out of the closet, like you wouldn't believe I don't know. I mean, I only released it on March 22nd. It's April 18th. (laughs) Like a month. I know I'm buckled in to see what else is going to come. Yeah. And I'm just like, I mean, that to me just seems like the scariest part, right? Like having to deal with all the reverberations and whatever comes up and whatever. Because it's not like even like friends, it's like they're your family. Like you can't just be like, Oh, I mean, you could, I guess, but you know, you're not, you have to deal with them. Yeah. <laughs> you have to, you right. can't just like, run away from it really. Right. I mean, what has that been like for you in the last month? Of it's of been that? challenging. I'll tell you, my dad and I are very close. And if you're in a book and you're somewhat painted negatively, but mostly positive, just like in any, like if I tell a person in my company, listen, you're doing these 55 things amazingly, but this one thing we need to work on, all they hear right. is the one thing. Sure. So unfortunately, you know, my father sort of allowed this torment and torture and abuse to happen to me. And so he owns it completely, but he owns it fine if it's not in a book. Right, right. Right. <laughs> but he was supportive. And when he read the book, He's a writer, actually, and he's a beautiful writer, much more beautiful writer than I am. And he would text me, this is really good, like, oh, my God. And then he proofread it, but then he doesn't like who he was. Yeah. And he doesn't want that out in the world, but he also wants me to be successful and have this experience. And so it is, we don't really talk about the book. Oh, interesting. And he came to my virtual launch, which was more a panel of different speakers talking about how they were relentless in their pursuit of success and happiness. But he did not come. And I told him not to come Mm. to the in-person performance that I did, because I can't imagine, especially at his age and the point of life he's in, sitting in a theater full of people that are all going to go, why didn't you stop that? You know, that's the first... (laughs) reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know. I just didn't think it would be healthy for him and it would hurt him not to come and it would hurt him to come. And I thought that the less hurt would be for me to say, I don't want you there. Mm -hmm. And, and I also told my brothers, you know what, if I'm performing somewhere, like, you know, when I'm at Yoshi's or Monterey jazz festival or wherever, I'm like, I'm forcing you to come. But this right. event, you're not coming. I know you don't want to be there. I know you support me, but you're not coming. And they didn't. So, yeah, I think that it sounds like you're really handling it well. 
you know, I mean, listen, I have a therapist that I bounce these things off. And she said an incredible thing. I said, I'm so worried that I'm going to hurt my dad by telling him I don't want him to come. I can't take care of him emotionally. I don't want him to have like a panic attack or a heart attack. And then I have to go in an ambulance. Right. And she said, maybe your dad would feel like relieved. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Okay. That's the plan. Good idea. It didn't occur to me. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 He probably, <laughs> I mean, just that you to remove the pressure that he would feel yeah. like he should be there for you. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. So I've got to move over now a little bit into the music because ah. as, a, as a very amateur, I'm an amateur vocalist and guitar player. Ah. I'm in a band. We play for snacks. It's nice. basically. Yeah, but it's fun. And a lot of music in my family as well. And so I'd love to hear about a little bit more about your music. And I kind of get the feeling it's something you've had in your life. Yeah. 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 So I was singing and playing the piano next to my dad from the time I could almost walk. There's photos of me hanging from the keyboard on the piano. And I started playing the violin in fourth grade, classically trained, professionally playing with my string quartet since I was 15, full ride scholarships to colleges, concert master of symphonies. And then my heart and soul just wanted to sing. So my first record is a singer songwriter record. I wrote all the songs. And honestly, a lot of those songs are the soundtrack of the tapestry of my life. And a lot of them, most of them are in the audible version and they're in my book launch keynote musical performance presentation. <laughs> yeah. So let's, I'm going to, this reminds me of when I'm helping someone with the book and they just drop this giant nugget <laughs> of gold and we have to slow down and okay. dust off. And so, because now, first of all, say more about you actually have vocal and musical performances woven into the audible version of your book. Yes. So tell us more about that. Cause I think that's it's amazing. Neat. So that yeah. first record, of course, I wrote all the music Then I have six more and they're jazz albums, they're various music, but all my heart and soul, right? And some of the subject matter of those songs really worked with the book. And so I did this, I think it's brilliant, Robin, and I can send it to you. I was so excited about it. Nobody else really got it, but (laughs) I did a map of the different audible chapters And then I went in and listened to where I wanted to put the music, chose exactly where in the song, where to fade in, where to fade out, where to interrupt the speaking, where to put it in the background. And I made this map. I love this. And I mean, I got excited. I screenshot it to a couple of people and they're like, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm so happy with how it came out. It's not like a musical theater thing or a musical. Mm. It's just, I think it's so organic that you might, I don't know if this is true. This is what I hope. And then if somebody has downloaded Audible, they don't know the music's in, Mm. right? They didn't hear it, that they're listening to it. And it doesn't catch them as a surprise that there's music in it, that it's such an organic, wonderful experience that maybe later they're like, huh, there was music in there, wasn't there? (laughs) (laughs) I think that that is such a beautiful thing to do because music, as you know, carries, and I'm sure your voice, your vocals, especially carry 
emotion. Yeah. And it's so nuanced and it has to do a lot with the tone itself and the vibration itself, which you can get some of that across with the words alone. Oh yeah. But my bet is that it's probably a much more emotionally impactful kind of experience to also have the music with your Yeah, I hope so. I'm getting some feedback. The Audible launched, I think, a week after the book launch. So most people that immediately got it as a book or Kindle. And now people are starting to write reviews about the music. And it's really cool to see. And again, nobody's saying, wow, in your face. You know, it's so woven throughout that I hope it would be really cool if it was more like subliminal almost. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if it has to be that subtle. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now there was another, okay. So that was the audible piece. Now, what is this live performance? I mean, we've all heard of authors doing book readings, but not for uh, me. Sasha is like the book reading That is not how I do it. So, right. So what is this? I created, so I think typical book readings are like, if you go into a book sync, you're going to be introduced as an author, maybe asked a few questions, then you're going to read a couple of short excerpts and then do a Q and a, is that right? That sounds about right. That's about right. Mm -hmm. For mine, I had an audience come to the San Francisco MoMA theater it's 270 people. I had my band up on the stage. And then again, I'd love to share this with you if you care about it. It sounds like you would. Uh I sketched out eight different scenes that we were going to perform. And Mm -hmm. some of those scenes have, I'll give you an example, the trailer of the book played on the screen. And then the music in the trailer is one of my songs called Her Life. Then at the end of the trailer, the band started playing that trailer instrumentally. I came up to stage during that. I sang the first verse of that song. And while they were still playing, I read an excerpt of the book that goes with that song. And then after that excerpt, I joined the band who was still playing for the last two verses. In other scenes, the music might have been playing instrumentally in the background of my reading, but it wasn't just reading. It was also talking to the audience. And the way that I give any presentation, I don't plan it this way, but now I know this is who I am. I begin a conversation with my audiences, small Mm -hmm. or large, and they become part of the experience. And if I wrote that in to my, it wouldn't work. So it's very off the cuff. Yeah, And then, so for that book launch, that's how I did it. But for keynotes, I do then an extra element, which is where I'm sort of teaching, giving sort of inspirational, motivational elements, in addition to talking to and with them off the cuff and reading short excerpts and performing. (laughs) I know. I wish our listeners could see the look of awe on my face. (laughs) I'm just like, wow. It's a lot. And you know what? My daughter was in the audience and she actually sang a song with me, but Mm -hmm. she sat in the audience and she's 26. And I think it's the first time that she's really heard me. 
And she came up to me and she said, mama, she's like, I've been singing these songs my whole life. I know all the words. And she's a writer and a very deep thinking, deep soul, but she had never Mm. interpreted Mm. what those songs were saying and what my hopes and dreams were and what my, and that was really touching to me. And the response from people were like, what did I just see? Wow. And the key to this is you've got to keep people engaged in awe, and then you need to shut it down before they get bored. (laughs) (laughs) My show was an hour long and it could have been an hour and 10. It could have been an hour and a half and I would have lost them. Mm-hmm. So it was eight. I going to say, are you going to take this to Broadway or something? Oh gosh. You know, there's been people that have wanted to option the book for a movie or a limited series. And then one of the people that is really interested in producing a work from my book was there with her husband and her husband said, this should be a musical, but it's not quite a musical. Like uh-huh. I don't love musical theater. I definitely don't like cabaret. I'm so sorry for those who do. I'm a realist. Uh-huh. Even though I'm creative, I don't want it to turn into a song and dance show or a one woman play that's very stark. And so mm-hmm. maybe <laughs> we'll find a way to well, I'm brilliantly sorry. put it together. I, and I'm not throwing shade at anybody, but if we can make a Broadway show out of SpongeBob, I don't see why we can't <laughs> Bend the rules a little. <laughs> you know what I was watching it's, on the plane? Uh, very poignant and creative and I'm sure entertaining. Yeah. That movie, which was a Broadway show, Dear Evan Hansen, is that what it's called? That was done very well. Although the people sort of broke out in song instead of reciting lines. And I was like, oh, that's pushing it a little far for me. Anyway, we'll see. <laughs> <clears throat> I know it's interesting, but <laughs> I don't even know what to say about, I'm not going to say anything about Broadway. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about Broadway, but I could totally see a potential for turning it into a full-blown show that wouldn't be cheesy. Okay. Well, I'll work with you on that, Rob. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're hired. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I'm the right person. <laughs> you probably need someone much better qualified than me for that. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay. So where were we? So we were talking about memoir. So I would love to hear, can we talk a little bit about your journey in terms of like getting literary agents and being offered book deals and whatnot? Because I happen to know through my work that one of the toughest things to sell is memoir, mm-hmm. especially if you're not a celebrity. Right. So I'd love for you to share about a little bit more detail on that aspect of your experience and mm-hmm. what some of the things that you uh, learned. Well, the first one is a cautionary tale, and that is after I worked on the book by myself for a while, I realized that I was writing an essay form and it wasn't, the prose wasn't sparkling and beautiful. And I wanted this book to read like a beautiful work of fiction. I didn't want to fictionalize anything, but I wanted that. That was the most important thing to me Mm -hmm. is that it be a beautiful work to read. And so I went out looking for what I thought, because I used the wrong term, was a ghostwriter. And you don't need a ghostwriter if you have 50 to 80,000 words. 
you need some other things, but I didn't know that at the time. So that was the request I put out and I got a response from some people. They pointed me to a woman who I will not name, but she rose her hand and said, I can do this. Now she was also a very formidable literary agent with some Mm -hmm. huge names of books that she put forth into the world. Okay. And so I did not do my due diligence in looking at her work as a writer and an editor. Uh I used my Midwest naivete and I just believed that she would be brilliant, that Uh we would have this brilliant, like the story is already brilliant. Like you can't do anything about the story. It is what it is, but the writing was not going so well. Mm-hmm. And I kept asking her, my daughter, who's a great writer, would read the drafts. And she's like, mom, this is not good. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So I would say to this woman, can we work on this? And she pushed back. And then she started to say, yes, I'll take you on as a client. Mm-hmm. And she sent this rickety manuscript out without a proposal. Oh my God. To her contacts. I don't, and this person had actually represented notable authors, huge books, huge. And I understand a little bit more about her motivation now, which I won't go into, but it really is circling back to me. I didn't do my due diligence. It's me. I didn't ask her for samples. I didn't ask her to start on a couple of chapters. And then if it didn't work, like there's a million things I could have done. I believed in the people that referred her to me and I believed in her from what she had done. And looking back, it's all, you know, it's me. (laughs) So we got letters back and one of them said, brilliant story, amazing entrepreneur. Oh my God. But the prose doesn't sparkle. And I wrote back to the editor and I said, wow, if the prose isn't sparkling, which I knew it wasn't, can we do something about that? And she said, oh, honey, if I could write like that. And I was like, wait a minute. Isn't that what I paid for? Isn't that what we discussed? Like, and she was like, yeah, if they pick it up, you know, an editor will clean it up. I, oh got, my God. I got bamboozled. And, you know, by a very the way, huge number, by the way, of money. Oh, my God. And any agent, it's really not appropriate for an agent to charge you for working on your work. What well, was um, separate? She said she'd be the editor and couldn't guarantee being the agent. It's, it's a little swarmy. It's I know. Inappropriate. Yeah. Right. It's appropriate. So then ah. I, I found another agent. And at this point, without being, let's just say a couple of book deals came my way in the entrepreneur memoir space, a little easier, right? Smaller. Uh-huh. Sure. I mean, they're not small, but anyway, not the big five. Yeah. And gotcha. I looked at it and I grilled them about their marketing and promotion and publicity. And they didn't have, and I'm a kind of hard-nosed business executive, sure. even yeah. though I wasn't <laughs> so savvy with this other person. And when they couldn't respond with a meaningful response, I was like, well, why would I do that? Why would I do that? And I made the best decision for me. I almost, for ego, signed on the dotted line for a couple of them, pulled back. I almost went into a hybrid situation. Oh, yeah. Those are the worst. I mean, well, for somebody like me. True hybrid is not a bad move. But unfortunately, a lot of places bill themselves as hybrid, but they're really overpriced vanity presses is what they are. This particular press, I think they do some good work. 
but I didn't need them. That was the bottom line. And because I'm an entrepreneur and I carve my own path and I've been successful, but it took me three and a half years to figure out what publishing path was right for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how do you mostly market your book besides Amazon? Do you do a lot of speaking? And oh Lord, well I mean, okay. So I started telling people that I had this performance keynote, and I had a couple of groups demand that I come in January and early March. The book isn't even out yet. They did book buys, (laughs) and I was a little annoyed with myself for saying yes. But then you know what that did? It gave me professional paid practice time. Mm, right. So the go. marketing, I had a 25 point marketing plan that kicked everybody's butt that was involved. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little over the top. But <laughs> I mean, I've sold, I don't know, six or 7,000 books already. That's fantastic. And it's not a flash in the pan campaign. Mm-hmm. We're doing a whole right. year. Yeah. But that kind of lights me up and excites me. And a lot, a lot of our authors are moved by that mm-hmm. challenge. Yeah. And you said something very important that I want to highlight here because you said you've got a 12-month campaign plan. And I think that the biggest mistake authors make if they really want to sell books is just like marketing it for 12 weeks and then saying, oh, I'm not selling enough. So I guess it it doesn't work. And then stopping. (laughs) I don't think people realize it takes a while for a book to get its legs. Like if you really want the book to have legs, at least a year of consistent marketing. Yeah. And I'm not cutting it off at that year, but yeah, at least a year. And I have a small army of people that are helping me with this. And even if I had published traditionally or hybrid, I would have had to do this anyway. They're not- Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. (laughs) I mean, I think that the one- thing that we tend to see more the traditionally published books in the brick and mortar stores for what it's worth. I mean, obviously it's not as much of a factor as it used to be, but it still does aid with discoverability to to have. Have you been able to get your book placed in stores yet or? Yeah. You know, it's distributed by Ingram Spark and it's orderable by any (laughs) bookstore. I'm focusing on BookSync and smaller bookstores and doing some in-store and appearances, but really in markets that know, like, and trust me, right? I'm not going to be in places that no one knows me yet, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But with reviews and interviews and social proof and social sharing, there might be a reason for me to have a couple of books in bookstores all over America. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a reason for that right now. Yeah. And, you know, um, you said something else just now that's important too is you know never underestimate the power of word of mouth. Oh and yeah. That, that is the way the books were sold from the beginning. Yeah. It's still the most reliable way to sell books. It just takes time mm-hmm. because you and have it takes to- money because it takes money. I sent out 75 influencer boxes and I'm not sending them to influencers like TikTok influencers. <laughs> I'm sending them to people that have agreed to help share the book with their communities. And someone just emailed their list of 85,000 people. Not a bad shake. That's one of 75, right? And people are having me on live streams or podcasts or they're posting. But what? where the real power is coming from 
is after they've read it. Yes. I saw, I was at the airport just after security. I sat down, I was waiting for my daughter. I opened my phone and I looked at this review from a man that I don't know mm-hmm. who wrote the most incredible review. He was telling his friends like, oh my God, I read this book. And there's three pictures of underlined passages. And I'm crying now sitting on this ottoman with what he said. And basically he's like, this is the book. I wish I had the courage to write. Oh, there you go. And I don't know how many people that saw that are going to buy or read the book, but I have a feeling that because it was very organic and authentic and not, he wasn't one of my influencers, right? He just did it because he was rocked. Yeah. That's the best part. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, when it comes also friend to friend or somebody who's in your networks, a trusted friend or advisor, then, you know, it's, you just buy the book, don't you? You don't think twice about it. Your friend says, it's a great read. You go, okay, I'm buying it. (laughs) And you know, the giving out of books, especially for entrepreneurs with their business books, they kind of hand them out like business cards. But for me, I'm not giving my book away to friends and other people because there is a psychological thing about if you invest in something, then you're going to actually, yes, I do want to sell books. Let me just say that to the universe. Yes, I want to sell books. (laughs) Yes, I want to make money. My most important goal is that people are reading it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that is where I leave my legacy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So well said. And I think you're right. I actually, I think was talking about this in a different podcast interview about how it really devalues a book when you just have a stack of them on your display table and it's just with a sign that says, take one. I mean, it's it's a terrible marketing strategy and nobody's going to read it. And the only thing worse than that is throwing it in a swag bag. (laughs) Well, you know, when I do speaking engagements, I do ask the entity to do a bulk buy. Oh yeah. And those may go in a goodie bag, but if they see my performance, well, they're going to read it. There's no way that they're not going to even, they're going to at least read the first chapter. Right, and right. what I know about what people are saying is, yeah, I read the first line, like I was busy, but then I couldn't stop reading it. And then I read the first chapter and then God damn it, I have work to do. Right, <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, listen, it's not going to win a Pulitzer, but I mean, it might, but probably <laughs> <laughs> not. <laughs> But I think it's engaging enough that if you do get to that first page, mm. you're probably going to read the book. If you find yourself with the book <laughs> and you open it up <laughs> and you read the first lines, then you're done for. <laughs> She's gotcha. <laughs> All right. Well, I cannot believe how fast this time has flown by. So before we run out of time, I'm going to ask you my signature final question. Okay. Which is, what question have I not asked you that you would love to answer? Ooh, God, we went so many places. I know. <laughs> yeah, I guess you haven't asked me what I'm doing on the back end of the book. Great. Yeah. So I'm actually going to show it to you, but I know no one else can see it. But I'm going to turn to the back. And in the back of my book, this is a straight memoir, but you know it has to do with my business. There are basically descriptions of the things that you can do with me if you're interested. And one of the things that I'm doing is teaching 
mostly entrepreneurs to write their own story or a memoir and figure out what their publishing path is and how to market it. And so that's called Memoir Sherpa. It's right here. Uh-huh. And nice. then I have the podcast that I host with entrepreneurs that do a million dollars in revenue and more. So really I think my sweet spot, the bulk of people that I'm speaking to are entrepreneurs. However, if you're not an entrepreneur or not interested in business, it's still I think a really good read. You may not be as engaged with like the last fourth of the book as if you were an entrepreneur, but I think you can it's not so into business lingo like I make fun of some of the things that we talk about in business. So the back end is teaching, coaching, speaking, and that's where the monetization of writing this book is coming from. It's not in book sales. Amen to that. And you know, that is true. By the way, listeners, every book, and no matter how much it's selling, if the author's smart, the book sales should only be 10% of the gross or the net. Harry Potter, good example. She made a lot of money on book sales, but then let's look at movie rights and products and licensing and theme parks. And I promise you the book sales, I have not seen her numbers, but I'm going to wager it's around 10%. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that blew up. I don't think uh, my book is an amusement park, but. but. But it's a matter of scale, right? But whatever you're earning on book sales should never be more than 10% of what you're getting yeah. in terms of revenue and value for having a book. For sure. I agree with that 100%. <laughs> well, this has been such a treat, Natasha. And I just want to thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing your wonderful stories and wisdom on the Author's Corner. Thank you, Robin. And thank you for taking a chance on this new author. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 